You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We have in the last several meetings performed a kind of quick overview of ancient philosophy, touching, as I said, on the highest peaks in the mountain range that is ancient philosophy, with the idea that one will fill in the interstices between these figures we did mention with all those whom we did not. In the accompanying lessons for these tape lectures, you will find a great deal more information both presented and indicated in terms of the readings and writing assignments. When we turn from the ancient world to the world of faith, from the pagan world to the Christian world, we perhaps pass over one of the greatest transitions in human history. For believers, of course, it is the hinge of history, the fullness of time. That was not immediately apparent historically or to the people living contemporaneously with Christ or immediately afterward, but there was, as you know, a tremendous explosion of Christianity out from the Holy Land into the Greek colonies and on into Rome and eventually through the Roman Empire. But just a word about these intervening centuries as they look from a more or less pagan point of view. Although Greek hegemony gave way to Roman hegemony with the rise of the empire and Roman power and the expansion around the Mediterranean basin and then eventually through Europe and to England, the cultural hegemony of Greece was never really called into question. We find, for example, people like Cicero very proud of the fact that they studied in Athens and even some centuries later in the Christian era, Boethius studies in Alexandria and receives the benefits of the last remnants of the Athenian school of Greek philosophy. This is a prize sort of connection. Latin poets would have preferred to be able to write their poems in Greek. They consider that to be much more of an accomplishment poetically than writing in Latin. I'm thinking of people like Cicero and Horace and the like. Not that Cicero wrote poetry. When we turn to the ages of faith, we are skipping over people like Plotinus and people like Cicero, the Stoics, who had such a tremendous influence on Christians and so forth. And this is the point I want to make originally. Greek philosophy, as it spreads out from Greece and as it exercises its influence in Rome, has its impact on the first, second, third generation of Christians in a very noticeable way. Many of the fathers of the church were students in the pagan schools. St. Basil, for example, has a work that asks that question. Is it fitting that the children of Christian believers should be trained in the schools of pagan philosophy? And he argues on behalf of that. On the other hand, there are fathers who would say, well, wait a minute, what we have in Christianity is the fullness of truth that was sought in various more or less unsuccessful ways by the pagan philosophers. Why, given that we have the fullness of truth, should we be looking back at these partial and flawed efforts of human beings? And this is something that had to work itself out very gradually. It is the initiation of a theme that permeates the Middle Ages and, of course, beyond. It is one of the abiding questions for the Christian believer. What is the relationship? 
between what he believes, what he accepts as true on the basis of revelation, on the one hand, and what he and any other human being can come to know by the use of our ordinary cognitive powers. What is the relationship between faith and reason? And we find as we track this question through the Middle Ages a growing clarity as to what the relationship was between them. St. Augustine was so enamored of Plato that he toyed with the idea, accepted for a long time, the notion that Plato had gotten his doctrine by reading the books of the Hebrew Bible, that on a trip to Egypt he came into contact with these, and that's why Plato seems so close to us. He's actually borrowed from one of the great sources of Christian belief, the Old Testament. Eventually, Augustine gave up this view and accepted the impossibility of Plato's ever encountering directly, in translation or not, the works of the Old Testament. So he's left with this issue, this puzzle, this mystery for him. How is it that someone like Plato, unaided by grace or revelation, should have arrived at such lofty truths as Augustine considered them? And indeed, it is possible to think of Augustine, whose life tracked over into the fifth century, dies in the year 430, it's possible to see him as a Christian Platonist. For Augustine, the thought of antiquity almost reduced to Platonism or Neoplatonism. Scholars discuss and wrangle about the nature of Augustine's contact with Greek philosophy. Augustine himself tells us that he knew little Greek, and that would, of course, have been a great impediment to reading works which were written in that language. But it was possible to, of course, pick up one way or the other some inkling or intimation of Neoplatonic philosophy and Platonic philosophy. Plotinus, the Roman Neoplatonist, whose Aeneid summarized his thought and which were edited by the great anti-Christian Porphyry, would be an example of someone that Augustine is thought to have known, if not directly, nonetheless indirectly. But that question is interesting only if we notice in Augustine's teaching themselves some influence of Greek philosophy. And we'll see what he does with that. We'll see what Platonism looks like in Augustine and how it's a kind of a domesticated or tame Platonism, which then has a long history through the Middle Ages. Plato is the dominant philosophical figure for much of the Middle Ages. The whole question of how it is possible for these works to be read in the later Middle Ages raises the question of the transition, the passing on of philosophical texts. It would, of course, be illusory to think that because someone in the 7th century AD is closer to those chronologically in the 4th century BC that therefore he has greater access to what they taught and to the works that they wrote and published. This is not, of course, the way it works. There is a very choppy and episodic or discontinuous transmission of text. For many centuries, the works of Aristotle, the treatises of Aristotle, were lost. And it's only in the first century of our era with Andronicus of Rhodes that we have them edited and they come into play once more. And there are many stories that are told as to how they happened to get lost and how they were out of the mainstream of thinking for so many years. So here you have people who would be very close to Aristotle in time and yet would be unaware of what for us is Aristotle, namely the treatises, the physics, the metaphysics on the soul, and so forth. What they knew were things which have become all but lost to us, and that is dialogues of Aristotle. Cicero refers to the style, the literary style of Aristotle. 
And anyone familiar with the treatises of Aristotle is going to be rather surprised at this kind of praise. It's a very workable kind of language, but it's very much at the service of what he's trying to convey, and very little attention being paid to the mode of conveyance. And here is Cicero, obviously someone who could speak with authority, telling us that Aristotle was a great stylist. He's referring to the dialogues of Aristotle which have only in recent years, since the mid-19th century, been recognized as authentic, the fragments of them, and they've been put together by editors in much the same way as the fragments of the pre-Socratics of Heraclitus, for example, are put together by editors and arranged in one form or another under various titles. There are various titles of Aristotelian dialogues that are known to editors, so they're guided by that in their allocation of fragments and so forth. But I mentioned this, just the vagaries of the transmission of text. It's not the case that there's a very smooth passage of a text from the 4th century BC through the intervening centuries down to our own time. That's a story in itself, how it is that early philosophers become known to later philosophers. But in the early period, in what's called the patristic period, we find a far greater influence when we look to the positive influence of Greek philosophy among believers, we find a far greater influence of Plato than we do Aristotle. It's not that Aristotle is not known. Again, it's a very peculiar kind of thing. Neoplatonists were very much interested in the writings of Aristotle, and indeed many of the writings of the Neoplatonists that have come down to us are commentaries on Aristotle. Neoplatonism could be trivially summed up as the belief that there is an ultimate compatibility between Plato and Aristotle. And if the emphasis, Plato is the dominant figure in that amalgam, nonetheless, the suggestion is that we don't have to choose ultimately between these two great thinkers, but that we can put them together. And the fact that Neoplatonists uh, devoted so much time to commenting on works of Aristotle is a testimony to that. And we'll see in the case of Boethius how obvious it is that he was acquainted with the treatises of Aristotle. At any rate, here you have, in a literary way, you have an opposition. On the one hand, the sacred books, the books of the Bible, the book, which comes with an authority of God speaking to us. And the believer accepts this. This is God's word. So he attends to it in a very different way than he would say from a letter from home or to any work of a pagan philosopher. And the question from a literary point of view, as we might put it, is what is the relationship between these two kinds of literature? If you accept the Bible as the word of God, do you thereby lose all interest in any other kind of thinking expressed in other writings? Or do you see the necessity of what, rejecting them in an explicit way? I mean, the first possibility would be simply to ignore them. Is the next indicated thing to reject them and condemn them? Or is there the possibility of some kind of coexistence between these two kinds of literature possible? That translates in terms of the expression of mental attitude, so to speak, behind these two. What is the relationship between the faith of the believer and the truths, uh, the knowledge that he has as a result of his faith, on the one hand, and truths which can be gained simply by looking at the world, thinking about it, which are in the, so to say, public domain. So we will be seeing as we move through rapidly, of course, again, 
the Middle Ages, we'll see this is a recurring theme of the Middle Ages. It's one that's never settled once and for all. But what is the relationship between what has been revealed and what can be known? Are there real or only apparent conflicts between knowledge claims on the one hand and revelation on the other? We'll see that there are variations on solutions. Throughout the Middle Ages, there will be people who will want to reject any interest in secular learning as being simply a distraction and a temptation. And most recently in our own time, John Paul II has produced an encyclical called What Faith and Reason, which shows that this issue is an abiding issue for believers, and he is summarizing the history of the relationship between those two over the centuries and putting before us the problem in our own times. If there is anyone who sums up the patristic aid, particularly among the Latin fathers, it is St. Augustine. And what we're going to do now is concentrate for a moment on the thought of Augustine himself and let him stand for all kinds of other people that we're not going to be mentioning. Our next stop on this quick trip will be Boethius, who comes along about a century after Augustine. Again, Augustine lives in the 4th and 5th centuries, dying in 430. Boethius, whom we'll take up next, is born in 480 and dies in 524. So there's just about a century skip between these two massively important figures in what we might call the early Middle Ages. St. Augustine's story is known to everyone because of the Confessions, this very dramatic account of his conversion, which moves people to this day. And in it, he tells of his riotous youth, of his devoted mother and his father, who was not a Christian, and his mother's desire that he should become baptized, and he's constantly putting this off. And he goes off to Carthage and goes to school and misbehaves, as people sometimes do when they go off to school. But he becomes finally uh, credentialed as a teacher, and he begins to teach in North Africa, where he was born, and eventually then goes on to Italy and sets up school in Rome and finds that his students are very slow to make their payments to him, so he goes north to Milan. And this was, of course, the great fateful move in Augustine's life because it was in Milan that he heard St. Ambrose preach, the Bishop of Milan. And the tribute to Ambrose in the Confessions is, again, a very moving one. What the influence of just listening to Ambrose preach was decisive for Augustine. And finally, he decided to kick away the traces of his previous more or less dissolute life, although successful life in terms of his professorship in an imperial rhetorical school. And he went into retreat in a little town outside of Milan called Casiciacum. And there he prepared himself for baptism. Now this period, which is very important of course in his spiritual life, is also important for us when we consider how he occupied himself with his friends there at Casiciacum. His mother was there, his natural son, Adeodatus. Augustine lived for prolonged periods with two women, and he never tells us what their names are. But he does mention the name of this son, Adeodatus. And with uh, Adeodatus at Casiciacum, Augustine enters into a philosophical dialogue, the famous dialogue on the teacher. But there are other writings that date from that particular period, among them the De Musica on music of Augustine. And I invite you to consider this and the importance of this because 
gives us some clue as to what Augustine was like as a teacher in the imperial rhetorical schools. I mean, these are the subjects, presumably, that he would have taught, and he's kind of summarizing them in this period when he's preparing, in effect, to say goodbye to all that. And these are, by way of being, works in the liberal arts, a concept to which we will be returning. In any case, Augustine returns to North Africa after his conversion, but he stops at Rome, and his mother, Monica, dies at Ostia, the mouth of the Tiber River on the Tyrrhenian Sea, and she is buried in Rome. The tomb of St. Monica can be visited in the church of St. Augustine in Rome, which is near the Piazza Navona. But this was a very moving event in Augustine's life. He's now in his early 30s. And he returns to Africa, and it is there that he is elected bishop, made bishop of Hippo. And here in this minor diocese, as we might say, on the margin of the empire, he exercises an influence which is just absolutely permanent on the Christian mentality. Augustine is the thinker that both Protestants and Catholics claim. He is, of course, prior to the unfortunate split among Christians that took place at the Reformation, but he is someone to whom everyone can go back with the sense that he's ours, he's our predecessor. So his influence is not at all diminished or split, you might say, by the unfortunate split among Christian believers. When Augustine settles, so to speak, in Hippo as the bishop, he is immediately addressing himself to problems confronting the Christian community. And of course, one of the big problems that confronts the Christian community is heresy. So many of the early writings of Augustine are confrontations with points of view, with teachings which would mislead or confuse Christians. So he is interested in opposing the Manichaeans, whose sect he was drawn to before his conversion, and so too with other of the early heresies. Here's Augustine standing athwart them and stating what is the case as to the Christian revelation, Christian truth. So he speaks with an enormous authority, and he's heeded throughout Christendom as his writings began to circulate. The circulation of those writings is something that Augustine himself gives a rather wry account of in a work of his which he calls the Retractationes, the Retractions, which is in effect a kind of retrospect of his writings. He will often mention that he has written a certain book and this is what he said, in, but he doesn't have a copy anymore. Someone borrowed it and off it went and so on. And with one of his most famous books after the Confession, The City of God, which is a massive book, Augustine didn't have the early books when he was writing the later book. We're reminded, perhaps, of Dickens writing a novel, first parts of which have already appeared in print, and he doesn't know how it's going to end. But here's Augustine suffering some of those same agonies of authorship with respect to the city of God. What is the city of God about? This will tell you something, I think, of Augustine's attitude of the relationship between Christianity and the pagan antecedents to it. In the beginning, what he's confronting is the claim on the part of some pagan Romans that the difficulties that the empire is experiencing with the invasion of various barbarian hordes from the north, this is a punishment for having abandoned that old-time religion, and that only by the restoration of pagan rites and ceremonies and so forth will it be possible for these difficulties to be overcome. So the problem with the Roman Empire is Christianity. Now this is what Augustine is addressing overall in the City of God. 
But in the course of addressing, he takes up just one might suggest almost everything, but he makes a distinction between civil theology and natural theology. He looks at what the pagans have had to say about God and finds it very wanting, both the theatrical presentations of divinity, the efforts of philosophers to speak about God and so forth, and he is comparing them more or less in a negative way to true Christianity. In book eight of The City of God, we have, in effect, a history of philosophy. If you wanted to know what the antecedent stages of philosophy looked like to St. Augustine, and this will give us some clue as to the nature of his historical knowledge, you can consult Book 8 of the City of God. But I mentioned earlier that what we tend to think of when we think of Augustine and the relationship between faith and reason, the faith and philosophy, is his acceptance, his enthusiasm for Plato and it's been done to refer to Augustine as a Christian Platonist. What does this mean? What does this mean? One of the things that Augustine takes up in the Retractationes is he wants to correct an impression that he had given in one of his works which seemed to suggest, a la Plato, that the soul exists prior to its existence in the body and that the human being has a history that is antecedent to his earthly history and the like. He rejects this as being incompatible with Christian belief, and immortality for him is the career of the soul after this life and not any antecedent existence prior to its union with the body. This is an instance where Augustine seems to be rejecting an earlier acceptance of a Platonic view. But by and large, what Augustine did, and one could argue endlessly over this, was to interpret the Platonic ideas in such a way that they were accepted throughout the Middle Ages, certainly, in Christian theology. And the place where he does this is a rather obscure work. It's named as simply the 83 Diverse Questions. And in question 46 of the 83 Diverse Questions, Augustine takes up the question of the idea. And he asks himself, and he's thinking of the Platonic ideas, which you remember were those ideal forms and entities beyond by participation in which the things of this world are and are what they are. So that when we know what they are, we are actually referring to these models or ideals which exist elsewhere. This doctrine clearly seems to give us a plurality of these ideal entities. And one of Plato's problems was, what is the relationship among the ideals? The crisis in Platonic philosophy that I mentioned earlier has to do with the shift, we might say, of attention away from the relationship between the things of this world and ideas to the question of the relationship among the ideas themselves. Do they participate in one another in a way which is analogous to the fashion in which physical objects participate in them in order to be? What Augustine does in the text to which I've referred, question 46 of the 83 diverse question, is to say that the acceptance of the ideas is absolutely essential, that no believer can reject the ideas. And this can astonish us at first because it seems to make being a Platonist and being a Christian identical. So why is Augustine saying that? He says the reason why I'm saying that is this, if you reject the ideas, what you are doing, in effect, is saying that when God creates the world, he doesn't know what he is doing. So the ideas for Augustine become the patterns of creation. And 
This is the move that is absolutely crucial. The realm of the ideas, the locus of the ideas, is the second person of the Trinity, the verbum, the word that we read of in the prologue of St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the word. So that the intelligibility of creation and the way in which creatures emanate from God via the Logos is Augustine's understanding of the ideas. So now what the Platonic ideas have become, and they certainly were not this in Plato, are the divine ideas. And the divine ideas in one sense are one, the word who is the perfect expression of the divinity looking, so to speak, within the Trinity, but looking outside the infinite immutability of the divine perfection and being leads us to speak of a plurality of ideas with respect to the creatures which partially exhibit the perfection and being of God. So it is in that sense that Augustine understood the Platonic ideas. This is to alter them rather essentially, but as so altered, they were accepted by and played a tremendous role in later medieval theology. In the dialogue with his natural son, Adeodatus, that I mentioned earlier, the dialogue called On the Teacher, Augustine is discussing with his son how it is possible for a human being to learn anything. Is it possible for one human being to teach another? And he and his son go through any number of possibilities. Doesn't language enable one to uh, communicate with another what he knows, such that that person knowing the language is able to pick up and uh, accept or reject uh, what the other person uh, knows. And uh, Augustine, of course, is as aware as you, uh, as you and I of the uh, communicative power of language, but he's asking, is this really the first origin of knowledge? Does it, uh, does it uh, generate a, a knowledge that we did not have before? And he raises any number of questions uh, uh, about this, uh, but it leads towards the, uh, the uh, employment of a verse from St. Matthew's Gospel as the ultimate solution to this uh, problem. Uh, remember that in Plato, if uh, we say that we have come to learn or to know something that we didn't previously know, what the, um, what the explanation of that uh, is, is that we're remembering something that we had forgotten or which had become obscured because the soul was embedded or you know, uh, encased in, uh, in the body. Uh, in Augustine, there is a similar sort of thing where knowledge is not remembrance of some uh, previous state, but uh, it is not as if the external things, the words, the objects around us and so forth, cause knowledge, but rather if we come to know something, he uses this verse from Matthew, you have but one teacher, Christ. So the, the primary teacher, the source of truth uh, in us, uh, the source, the explanation of learning, is the causality of Christ in the soul. Now this, this is a very dramatic uh, uh, conclusion and uh, Augustine and his son draw out the implications of it uh, and so forth. And within the confines of the dialogue itself, it's a very satisfying solution because the difficulties that he has raised to alternative uh, solutions uh, are, rather, are rather persuasive. But in the event, this caused him a great deal of trouble because uh, it sounds as if uh, what uh, Augustine is uh, suggesting is that 
uh, Christ is literally in the soul, in the mind, and he's whispering solutions to us and so on. Uh, and uh, also it makes it difficult to distinguish between things that we know only because Christ has revealed them and other things which would seem to be uh, in the public uh, domain. There doesn't seem, in short, to be any way to distinguish between revelation and non-revelation, or between, say, a supernatural revelation and the natural revelation uh, that would come from our knowledge of the things about us, to use that use that language. So Augustine, uh, by dint of this uh, particular dialogue, shored up for himself uh, a number of difficulties with respect to the relationship between faith and reason. And any number of people wrote him letters, and he answered these letters, and, and they have come down to us. And uh, he finally is making the point uh, that it's not as if there's some special uh, revelation going on within us. When we employ that uh, verse that Christ the teacher teaches within, or you have but one teacher Christ, and from that say Christ the teacher teaches within us when we learn, what we are referring to is that which causes us to be called in, in, uh, in Scripture the image and likeness of God. All creatures are in some sense like God, but only man is the image of God. In virtue of what is man the image of God? Thanks to knowledge and will. So the cognitive capacity uh, that we have naturally uh, is, in effect, that in us which is most divine, which uh, reflects uh, most uh, or least inadequately, we might say, the perfection of, uh, of God himself. In short, the, the initial position uh, gets tamed uh, to, uh, the, uh, to, the, to, the, um, to a milder claim uh, that uh, we have this capacity uh, to learn. Uh, and this capacity is in us that which leads to our being called the image and likeness of God. That means we're most like God in this. We're most like uh, the Word uh, who, uh, uh, through whom God creates, uh, and that is the explanation of it. So it's, it's, it's in one sense fairly disappointing, but as we will see uh, in the case of the dispute uh, between Bonaventure and uh, St. Anselm, that remains uh, a, a very uh, important uh, point, and the question is, is it or is it not compatible uh, with the Aristotelian account of how it is that we come to know? I mentioned the uh, vagaries of transmission of the texts of the ancients, and one of the, one of the great problems is a linguistic one. Uh, sophisticated uh, people uh, like, uh, like uh, Cicero and, and, uh, and the like might have gone to Athens uh, to study, and that means they would have uh, learned Greek. Uh, later, uh, in the Christian period, uh, Augustine says he didn't know much Greek, but St. Jerome, as we know, was a very learned man and moved to Jerusalem in order to translate the Bible into Latin uh, with the help of Jewish scholars uh, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, in the case of uh, Boethius, uh, whom I've mentioned uh, before, and who is a key figure uh, in uh, this uh, matter of the transmission of texts uh, to the later Middle Ages. Uh, Boethius uh, was a Roman uh, from a uh, Roman noble family, uh, a very prominent family, that is, in, in Rome. Uh, his family had always been involved in the governance of Rome. But he's living at a time when Italy is under under the control of the Ostrogoths, and Theodoric, the king of the Ostrogoths, has set up his court in Ravenna. 
but uh, he wants everything to go on as it had uh, when uh, Italy was independent. So he wants the Senate, he wants councils, and so forth. Now, Boethius is a Catholic, and Theodoric is an Arian, huh? uh, and the emperor has, uh, has removed himself uh, and moved to the east uh, and uh, set himself up in uh, what would be, what will become Constantinople. And the, what is Constantinople, and the tension between Theodoric and, uh, and the Catholic Christians of Rome uh, is a part of the problem, perhaps, uh, that uh, led to um, Boethius's unfortunate end. Let me just mention that first. He worked for Theodoric the Ostrogoth uh, and uh, cooperated with him, uh, and eventually he was accused of conspiring with the emperor against the Ostrogothic king. Uh, and uh, he tells us this is, this is a false charge, but nonetheless he was uh, tried and condemned, and uh, he was uh, awaiting his death uh, in a cell in Pavia in northern Italy near uh, Milan again. Uh, and while he was awaiting uh, uh, his execution, which is a horrendous, uh, uh, he was killed in a horrible way, uh, he wrote a a work which was, the, after the Bible, was the most copied and disseminated work in the Middle Ages, uh, The Consolation of Philosophy. Uh, and in it, Boethius is asking the question, uh, Job's question, why do the way, the psalmist's question, why do the ways of the wicked prosper and, and, the, and the just uh, suffer such indignities and, uh, and trials and, and punishment? Uh, what is the answer to this? And in that particular work, which from a literary point of view is just astounding, it's divided into five books, and each book is uh, alternating uh, a poem and a prose section. Uh, in it, Boethius seeks to give a, just a philosophical answer to that. Of course, for the Christian believer, as, uh, as Boethius was, the innocent victim par excellence would be uh, the one to whom one would have recourse in the uh, plight that Boethius found himself. But in this work, and it's caused all kinds of puzzlement uh, in, re in uh, subsequent years, uh, Boethius holds himself to a purely natural or philosophical discussion of this question. So much so that uh, for many years, uh, the um, theological tractates of Boethius, his work on the Trinity, on the Catholic faith, uh, uh, and the like were regarded as spurious because it was thought on the basis of the consolation uh, that Boethius could not be a Christian. Uh, but nonetheless, he was. And uh, the, the puzzle remains, however. It, uh, we find Boswell citing Dr. Johnson's uh, consternation about this, that someone in such uh, straits uh, should have uh, shown himself to be magis philosophus quam Christianus, as Johnson puts it, more of a philosopher than, uh, than a Christian. But uh, Boethius was, for, for all the puzzlement of the relationship between uh, the consolation of philosophy and his theological tractates. He was indeed uh, a Christian. But one of the things, and this, this is what I want to emphasize uh, uh, next, one of the things that makes Boethius crucial in the question raised earlier as to the transmission of ancient thought uh, into the Middle Ages is that Boethius, who very likely studied in Alexandria, uh, this is uh, contested what isn't. But uh, my own view is that uh, he studied in Alexandria, and he had direct contact then with the, uh, the last stage, so to speak, of, uh, of Greek uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, and he conceived this project, 
Uh, Boethius said, what I want to do, uh, given the fact that knowledge of Greek is diminishing, what I want to do is to translate into Latin all of the writings of Aristotle, all of the writings of Plato, and then to comment on them to exhibit their ultimate harmony. So it's a kind of a Neoplatonic uh, ambition that uh, Boethius um, uh, expresses. Well, this project, if he had lived to be a lot older than the 44 that he reached, uh, he would never have made much of a dent in, in this tremendous project. But he did get, uh, he did get a number of things uh, done. By and large, what he did was to translate uh, a number of the logical works of Aristotle. Uh, so we owe to Boethius uh, a Latin version of the categories and of on interpretation, uh, at least those. Uh, he also did a translation of Porphyry's Isagoge, or introduction, uh, to the categories of uh, Aristotle. Porphyry was the editor of Plotinus's Aeneids uh, and a, a, a ferocious anti-Christian. But he wrote this uh, introduction to the categories, and Boethius translated that uh, into Latin, uh, and <coughs> he commented on that work twice. Uh, and uh, his idea was not only to comment on the works that he was translating once, but to do it twice. First in a kind of uh, 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 popular or superficial way, and then uh, the second one would be more in-depth. And indeed, several of these dual commentaries uh, have come down to us. That on, on Porphyry is, uh, is one of them. Now, what's crucial uh, about this is that these are the works, these logical works of Aristotle and Porphyry's introduction to them, these are the works that represented Aristotle, that were Aristotle for the Middle Ages up into the 12th century, towards the end of the 12th century. Aristotle was the logician. Of Plato, what was known in Latin, only a partial translation of the Timaeus, uh, and this is uh, probably the least typical of the, um, of the writings of Plato, but in it he gives us the Demiurge who is, who is fashioning the things of this world by looking to the patterns of the ideas and, uh, uh, and uh, so forth. This is partly translated. So it's an account of the coming into being of the physical world. So often, oddly, in our, uh, to us uh, perhaps, uh, Plato will be referred to as the physicist, as the natural philosopher, and Aristotle referred to uh, as the logician. This tells us something about the vagaries of translation. Plato is not going to be known in Latin uh, really until the Renaissance, uh, so that uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, in the 13th century has almost no uh, direct uh, contact with uh, Plato that wouldn't have been had centuries earlier, uh, so that whatever uh, what he says about Plato often, and uh, he will cite um, titles of Plato's dialogue, uh, we shouldn't think that he thereby had them on his shelf or available to them. He's usually citing references to those dialogues and those titles uh, that he finds in Aristotle or, uh, or others. Now, the, um, the logical works of, um, of uh, uh, Aristotle that, um, that Boethius um, translated, as I say, were, were, were to have a great career uh, in medieval education, medieval philosophy, uh, through what we call the early Middle Ages, uh, say, taking that up to, uh, to the year 12, uh, 1200. And if we think 
of what it was that Augustine was engaged in with his companion uh, at Casiciacum as he prepared himself for baptism, uh, that is, works on the liberal arts, something begins to emerge here which is absolutely crucial. And there is a contemporary of Boethius, a man named Cassiodorus Senator, who also worked for Theodoric but survived to tell the tale, who, although he was a layman like Boethius, founded a monastery uh, called Vivarium, uh, and he wrote a charter for the monks uh, of, that, um, of that monastery, uh, which has come down to us. And in it, he raises the question of the relationship between secular learning and sacred learning, between the Bible on the one hand and secular learning. What is secular learning uh, for Cassiodorus Senator, writing now at the beginning of the sixth century? It is the seven liberal arts. Huh? So if, if, we, if we had to characterize how Greek philosophy or earlier philosophy, pagan philosophy, survives into the Christian uh, era, and we wanted to, say, characterize this great swatch of time that uh, goes up through uh, the, the 12th century, we would say that secular thought, philosophy, is more or less identical with the seven liberal arts. Uh, these uh, seven liberal arts are looked upon as propideutic to understanding scripture. This is uh, Cassiodorus's uh, solution to the relationship between them. Knowing logic, rhetoric, and grammar, this is very important for understanding scripture. Knowing arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, uh, these are important for interpreting scripture. However interesting and important in themselves, they also have this pedagogical role uh, within Christian education of uh, preparing one better to understand uh, holy, holy writ. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a solution uh, of a kind that we, we uh, can perhaps skirt over too quickly. This is an amazing kind of resolution of what would have been a deep-seated controversy. This is, someone might, might think, a taming of these, uh, of these arts, but if we follow the track of liberal education, or education in the liberal arts uh, through the early Middle Ages, through those centuries between, say, Boethius and Cassiodorus Senator in the early 6th century to the end of the 12th century, we will find that they produced a very lively uh, and, uh, and hardly confining uh, context uh, for uh, secular uh, learning. God bless it. Yeah, I was trying to remember, did you show me? The fact that uh, Cassiodorus Senator, uh, whose Institutiones lay out the relationship between secular learning, the seven liberal arts on the one hand, and sacred learning on, on the other, the fact that this was keyed or geared to a monastic setting uh, is uh, of, uh, of great importance. Uh, medieval education. Uh, from now through uh, the Carolingian Renaissance say, at the turn of the millennium is going to be largely a matter of monastic education. Uh, the monasteries are the centers where some um, fragments uh, of uh, earlier learning will be preserved, will be copied, will be traded with other monasteries and so forth. And it, it looks to be a very conservative, it is a very conservative thing, and it looks to be very non-innovative and non-original. There's this concentration on texts and what authors mean and passing them on and so forth. We have to remember the political setting. 
uh, in which this took place and why it is that monasteries often will look like castles, will look, uh, they look uh, fortified, so, and they're built in such a way that they can see uh, uh, at uh, great distances in two directions, let's say down a, down a mountain valley, so they can see who's coming. Uh, these, were, these were places uh, that were often uh, monasteries built in remote areas, not simply to get away from the city, what were, where were the cities, but uh, to get away from uh, the possibility of invasion and, uh, and the like. So we have, to, we have to think of the work of the monastery in this political setting and social setting. And uh, while it might seem little uh, if we thought of optimum condition, when we consider what uh, the conditions actually were, we are going to feel a great sense of gratitude uh, to these uh, anonymous monks who copied and passed on uh, the text without which we would have far less knowledge of uh, pagan antiquity uh, than, than we do. Of course, they were not just concerned with uh, copying such works as these, but producing uh, the choral uh, manuals, the psalters, and so forth that were used uh, in the monastic church. Uh, the monks' uh, uh, ora et labora was the, um, was the motto of the Benedictine order to which many, most of these monks uh, belong. The rule of St. Benedict would have governed most of these uh, houses, and their life would be spent between tilling the fields and, uh, and being self-sufficient in terms of uh, the community uh, and the praise of God. And that praise of God, the opus dei, as it was called, the work of God, uh, kept them in the monastic church uh, a good portion of the time. Uh, the, uh, the Psalter is divided according to, uh, to the hours, matins, the morning hours, lauds, prime, terse, sex, known, vespers, compline. So this was the cranking around the clock, uh, so to speak, of the day uh, in the monastery. And on, at those intervals, and they started very early in the morning, the monks would be in the church praying, singing. Singing what? The Psalms. Uh, the 150 Psalms of David were sung in the monastic church uh, in their totality in the course of a week and then repeated and so on. So, and many of them sung more than once in the course of the, uh, of the day, and of, the, uh, of the week. Um, and of course the Mass would be uh, uh, the, the principal liturgy uh, in that monastic office. So this praise and worship and, and work in the fields and some monks are working in the scriptorium uh, on uh, manuscripts, uh, secular and, uh, and sacred. We owe uh, things to these anonymous uh, scribes that uh, it's impossible to uh, overestimate the, uh, the nature of our, our, our debt to them. So monastic schools, uh, which were largely uh, set up to, uh, along the lines roughly of uh, what we find in Cassiodorus Senator, and their principal uh, clients would have been monks. I mean, monks had to be trained in order to be able to um, meaningfully participate in the worship and the liturgy uh, uh, that uh, made up so much of their lives. So they had to be able to read, they had to be able to uh, understand uh, the gospel passages and so forth. And the liberal arts uh, tradition uh, uh, is carried on in the monasteries of, and mainly for the reason uh, that uh, uh, Cassiodorus Sonator had laid down. It is useful and important uh, for understanding scripture. So its ultimate rationale or justification was a religious one, but that didn't mean that uh, these arts had no reality or um, finality 
uh, in and uh, of them of themselves. So the monastic school uh, is uh, what we think of chiefly when we think of the Middle Ages. We look ahead uh, to the end of the um, uh, or the beginning of the s of the millennium uh, to um, um, Saint Anselm and uh, and Peter Abelard. Uh, two very different uh, types. Saint Anselm comes from Lombardy. He comes into Brittany and he joins a monastery at Beck, uh, and he spends a great portion of his life there, uh, elected prior eventually. It's there that uh, he teaches the other monks uh, and writes, uh, not until he's 45, however, uh, magnificent works that we'll be talking about uh, later. Uh, he's eventually uh, elected Archbishop of Canterbury, as his predecessor Lanfranc had been, and goes on to England and all kinds of political problems uh, and, uh, uh, and the like. But the monasteries were sources of churchmen uh, the church uh, looked to uh, the monasteries for well-trained and uh, holy men uh, to uh, be elevated into positions uh, outside the monastery. One of Bernard of Clairvaux's uh, uh, monks, uh, uh, protégés, became, uh, became pope, and we have uh, Bernard's letters to him telling him how to be a good pope. Uh, so the the monks uh, the uh, the uh, had a tremendous influence on uh, Christianity during these uh, feudal times prior to the rise of of, of the city uh, in education and in and in governance. So the um, monastic education will not. Uh, will not uh, in any way diminish uh, when the cathedral schools are begun, but under Charlemagne uh, an edict will go out uh, ordering each bishop to have a school at his cathedral, uh, which would be modeled on the, on the monastic schools, so there would be a scholasticus, a school teacher, the liberal arts, and then theology or, or uh, scripture. Uh, we'll return to these features, these aspects of medieval education uh, in the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.